We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. There is one emotion that stalks through many sessions in my therapy room, but hardly ever gets acknowledged. Fear. It's almost as if my clients are frightened to even name it. Sure, they'll own up to anxiety and anger, but fear? They would much rather banish it to the corner and make it turn its back. And here is confession time. I have to put my hand up. Perhaps my issues with fear comes into play too. And in the name of compassion and kindness to my clients, I go along with the game of hide the fear. My witness today is Tom Rutledge, who's the author of Embracing Fear, How to Turn What Scares Us into Our Greatest Gift. I love that title and I'll unpack it shortly. And we'll also be discussing Tom's four steps for dealing with fear. Tom has been a psychotherapist for 40 years and is in private practice in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a recovering addict and heads recovery retreats and co-hosts the Emotional Sobriety Podcast. Welcome to this edition of The Meaningful Life. What was it about your upbringing that prepared you to write a book about fear? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on on your program, Andrew. That's a great question to start with. And the short version is nobody really talked about anything. So, you know, it was like there was what was said and then what was what we were supposed to figure out. I'd call it the invisible policy manual that you learn in any dysfunctional family where every everybody knows every line and every section in it, but nobody ever knew that there's a manual and nobody's ever seen it. And if you call attention to it, that people say, oh, no, there's no manual. But if but if you break a see that's the thing if you break a rule in the manual everybody knows it. It's like I you know I I can remember a time when I'd been in just enough therapy to be trouble in my family and I was you know a young man and and back at my home where my siblings were there and our dysfunction was taking place and I brought my uh, my uh, now wife my fiance at the time. And of course, she didn't know anything about the rules. So, but she would, she would just say the things that she wanted to say. And I can remember just getting daggers from, from my siblings, you know, like, like, why don't let her talk? Don't let her, you know, don't let her say these things. Cause she was saying things that we would go, Oh, we all do that. Oh, this is going to upset our mother, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. And, and it's like, uh, how, how, how reactive we can be. So I grew up in that environment where, and I'm not, and it's not an all bad thing. I'm not here to tell everybody I, I grew up in a horribly abusive home or anything like that. It's like, you know, there's, you know, dysfunction is on a continuum, but because things weren't really talked about, weren't said, it's, it's like you pretty much were left on your own to figure life out. And I certainly had no, you know, there's many different angles on that, but I certainly had nobody there to help me understand what you're talking about with right now, as we begin this conversation, that having fear is normal. This is a normal human response. Now, you know, we say it now and it's like, well, duh, of course it is. But it's like, we don't, down deep inside that unconscious part of us, you know, no, we, that's where the, that's so, all of our stuff or so much of our stuff comes from fears. You know, the feelings we acknowledge, we're more comfortable, like you said, with other feelings. 
and we'll or, or minimize feelings, anxiety. You know what I what I begin the book with of embracing fear is the idea that worry and anxiety is a version of fear. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's just not a it's not terror. It, I mean, I say worry is kind of like punching holes in your gasoline tank and then driving around wondering why you get bad gas mileage. You know, it's just leaking all the time. So, what sort of things did you need to be frightened of when you were a child? Well, school, other children, uh, just it, it, again, I think I think my my story is a good example of the fact that you don't have to come from a blatantly abusive home to have problems that are beginning. They begin in your fan, your family of origin, because I remember when I first started in in therapy and when I when I went to groups and went to some workshops and stuff like that, I would listen to other other participants talk and I would think. Oh my God, I shouldn't be here because they come from, you know, somebody would come from an abusive home or they've been sexually abused or they've been beaten. And I would think I don't belong here. But then what I found is that I have a lot in common with them emotionally. And so I began that process of trying to figure out how do I belong here and what, and how I, what I belong is, is regardless of our story, one of the things, and, and I would imagine you probably can agree, agree with this in terms of the, the work you do. Emotions are what we have in common. You know, just because I haven't had the experience you've had, if we talk about experiencing, you know, say, let's talk about social fears. I've never met you until just this moment, but it's like, I'm sure we could find common ground in that. We can immediately find common ground in the fact that feelings were banned in my family too. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's sort of almost everybody who appears on this podcast is part of the revolution of actually (laughs) saying, "Uh, uh, I'm not going to shut up about feelings anymore. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about feelings. And the one we need to talk about the most is sort of the one that we have the most problems with, and that is fear. Well, and, and it's the core too. It's at the bottom of all the others, I think. So let's actually define what we mean by fear. Well, the, the first thing I do with, with the book is I, is, I, is I say we need to, and when I say we need to do this, I always want to make people understand that, help people know that, you know, as corny as this sounds, it is a process. You know, we're all works in progress and, and this is a process and nobody just goes in and switches it around. What we want to do is we want to, first of all, differentiate ourselves from the messages of fear. And we want to very first acknowledge the the positive nature of fear i mean you know that there is you know there is i i use a metaphor of i say the the negative culprit that we that we address in the book i call him the bully because he is like a bully he just kind of keeps picking at us and saying the negative things and pushing our buttons but there's a fear that i also refer to as the ally which is that's that's the part of us that is built into our human condition that is well initially it is the part of us at, at, at our and our brainstem, basically, where the bear is at the door, you know, you, you, you get the hell away, go, go the other direction, get away from that. But that, as our society has changed and we've grown through that, it's like, I want people to know there are healthy fears. There are plenty of things that, that we, can, we, we should be afraid of and that that actually becomes a motivation for that. But what we're talking about with, with the fears that give us the trouble are the ones, are the ones that basically are there and they can be something as actually as as simple or maybe convoluted as what you're talking about with fear with with feeling speaking in feeling terms was banned. The fear of having a fear of having a feeling, the fear of communicating, you know, that's a real fear. It's not just because it's not somebody's breaking in your house. That doesn't mean it's not a real fear, and it doesn't mean it's not really it's not causing trouble for you emotionally, even physiologically. 
that you're experiencing it as anxiety and fret and worry on a day-to-day basis. So let's look at the title of your book, Embracing Fear, How to Turn What Scares Us into Our Gracious Gift. This is not the positive fears that you're suggesting we're going to embrace. It's actually the ones that terrify us. So for example, that thud, thud, thud inside myself when I would ask my parents an emotional question, or, I mean, this is the most wicked thing I ever said to my father, Mm -hmm. I love you. Now, I can't tell you how frightened I was before I told him I love you, because it was not a topic that was ever said in our household. My father never actually said back to me, I love you. Oh, beyond on one occasion, he would reply, ditto. That was the nearest he got. Mm -hmm. But I was terrified when I said that. I mean, it's just ludicrous, but I was terrified. So how can we turn that fear into our greatest gift? Well, I think that to me, it begins with the philosophy that I have, which is when we're taking up the mantle of, of investigation and exploration of how we got to be the way we are, which is, you know, which is what therapy, therapy is a lot of things. You can look at it from lots of different angles. But therapy or not, and you don't have to be in formal therapy, just personal growth is everything is information. And so the idea of rather than than letting these things that we discover become like a a punctuation mark of like, oh, my God, that's uh, this is how it was for me. Therefore, that's how I am. One of the things that we do as therapists is we quite naturally, I think the reason we get into this business is we quite naturally are very curious people. And I think that's contagious. And so what I hope that my clients catch from me is, is that curiosity about themselves. I, you know, I think it's, it's almost like I, I refer to them as my co-investigators, you know. So let's see what we can do with that. Now we, you know, and if you want to, if you want to change something, um, I'm, I have a friend and, and, and colleague, colleague, uh, uh Roger and, and Andes that, that says always makes the point. He says, acceptance is always the first step of change. And it's a simple concept, but I love what he says about that because, because, because I had in my mind before I I knew him, I had acceptance in there as a positive, but just you know it's there. You can't do anything about it. I'm a, I'm, a reco- I'm I'm open with fact I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, so it's like that. That's a great easy example of, of acceptance. I have that. I need to respond differently with what that is. But he takes it a, little, a step farther, saying. You know, accepting it is actually beginning to, to create the problem definition. So, so you say, okay, so I have a tendency because I have, you know, you say I have this, you know, it was so, it was so taboo to speak in terms of feelings. Even saying the most positive feeling to my father was, was terrifying. It's like, yeah, so, he was so embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and see, well, one of the things that we, and of course, fear and shame are two sides of the same coin. I, we were titling that book today. It might be a little cumbersome, but I think I would say in, embracing fear and shame because I think they, they work very well together. But, but of course, and what, what ha- that does is keep us from talking about it, even in our adult lives. Uh, hopefully that people can listen to conversations like this and listen to your, your program on a regular basis and, and go, it's okay for me to talk about this stuff. To go back to your question, it's like, because the way to, to, to make that to begin the process of turning that into a gift is to say, okay, now that I understand this and, and I'm beginning to create a problem definition, we can look for ways to make a change to solve the problem. Just because I was hardwired basically to be afraid of all of this stuff. I do not have to stay that way. And a lot of times before people sit down and actually have a, a conversation with somebody else about this, 
we don't sit around thinking, oh, well, there's nothing I can do to change. We might, but, but it's like, we just kind of assume that we are what we are. And hopefully what we do with this process, even this conversation, is we introduce the ideas like, no, you, you know, you get to choose. You know, one of the big, the big ways of making change is to understand that we, we're not in control of a lot. I figured I'm almost 68 years old. I figured out that much so far. <laughs> yeah. I don't control a lot. When we look at the serenity prayer, what we control into, I don't control much, but we are in charge. And that's, that's the message that, that, that brings all of the possibility to life here. It's a corny analogy, but I, you know, I don't have anything to do with how the cards are dealt but I can become a good card player. And I think I'd like you to repeat the serenity prayer at this point, because it is a really beautiful prayer. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, I mean, one of my jokes about that is I say, if, if, if we all applied the serenity prayer and we were able to do that effectively on, on a day-to-day basis, you and I would be out of business. Uh, and the, the serenity prayer is, God grant me this serenity, doesn't, and God is whatever you mean God to be. I make that clear. For, for, it's like I don't profess a particular belief system. God uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and then the wisdom to know the difference. So it so much of this comes. It, it's energy efficiency, Andrew. It's like it really is. It's, it's like, and 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 I have a friend who says, you know, we. We tend to apply the serenity prayer backwards. Just like if you look at your life, you kind of go like, okay, there's these things that I don't have a chance in hell of, of changing, and I'm just pouring loads of energy into it, you know. And then there's a couple of little things I could do, <laughs> and I eventually get there. But it's like, you know, first I would just 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 spend lots of energy on this other stuff, and then go, oh, I need, to, I can't, I can't. And usually that means changing another person in terms of the work that we're doing. I can't change that other person. I have to change myself. And the thing about fear is people often use it to try and control us. Governments do it. And my speciality, which is couples, unfortunately, our partner will do it. I mean, not necessarily out of wickedness, but they're sort of, if they can make you frightened, you know, I'm going to get terribly angry or I'm going to leave you then they have a, a really quite an efficient way of trying to or actually succeeding in changing your behavior. Yes, yes. That's in, in, in that way, that's one of the things that, and I working with couples myself too, uh, it's like one of the things that is really, I mean, it's, diff, it, it, it's difficult. I mean, it's one of those things where they, uh, in AA, we, one of the things we, you hear people say is something is simple but not easy. And there's a lot of this stuff, is, and this is one of those simple but not easy things. But the way you're talking about using fear is to use is it, it can be subtle or not so subtle, but it's but it's intimidation and it, and it, it really becomes it is bullying. It is it, it, so so one of the things that that that, that you know that I want my, my clients to know is if you know you're not gonna you're not gonna solve problems even relationship problems from the outside in. It's like if you you know if if if, if we're in a relationship in which you're using fear and 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 you know kind of where my buttons are and you're pushing that stuff. What I have to come to terms with first, which is difficult to not be distracted by you, but I have to, I have to figure out there's a part of myself. That's that fear voice, that bully voice inside of me that does, that treats me the same way. That's what makes me susceptible to you. So, so it's like I'm, I'm buying into the idea that if I don't please Andrew, that I'm not okay. It's like, well, the truth is there's nothing wrong with wanting to be in a relationship and, and be pleasing to the other person, but 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 the but the equation 
you know, I, I must please Andrew or I won't be okay. If we dig down deep inside, that's where the, that's where our fear, that's where our fear message is. And it's like, we have, you know, if I want to be able to, to be stronger and better person in the relationship with you, I have to stand up to that inner bully. And when I do that, it doesn't mean that, and I always want people to know, it doesn't mean that, you, that the other person doesn't need to change something, but it's like, what it means is you, you know, serenity prayer, you know, you have to start, from, you have to start from your side of the street. But the truth is, if I'm not buying into the, the BS of my own inner bully, I am going to be far less susceptible to you controlling me in that way. And this is the important thing. I love the idea that you have of these two internal characters, and we have to have an image for each of them. So would you mind sharing the images you have for your two internal voices when it comes to fear? Well, and I appreciate the fact that you say personally mine because everybody's different. And it's, it's like, it is fun to, to get people to, to and, and it's image, but it's also voice. You know, when I, when I, when I, you know, when we listen to somebody from the outside and I'm going to get back to the image in just a second, but one of the things I'll point out to my clients a lot of times is when that bully voice is talking before they've actually come up with this, understand this metaphor to use is their voice will change. Their people, the cadence of their voice, a lot of times as they're talking in those terms of those kind of self-defeating, self-sabotaging things, they talk, you know, uh, 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 it's, it's a lot of staccato. It's, it's sometimes louder. It actually feels, it actually looks when the person more confident, whereas the person that they are that feels like they're in the receiving side of that will be more submissive and, and the voice will be lower and that, and that kind of stuff. But I, I also do, we do art sometimes and draw things. I, I have, it's, I'm glad you asked me this because I, I have this puppet thing that I have that I'll show you that it's like this guy's been beat up all over the place because he spent 25 years traveling the world with me in my presentations. He looks like he's come from another planet. He's got <laughs> yeah. one eye. He's, he's, he's well, green he and knobbly. Well, he had, he had two eyes, but, uh, but the other was beat out of him by some, some participants in one of my workshops. I, you know, it's, <laughs> the, it's quite therapeutic to take this inanimate object that we can, uh, we can project all that stuff on and throw it, and it's rubbery. So it makes a great splatting sound up against the wall. It's like causes no damage and stuff. So, you know, so yes, I have, and I've had people actually get, uh, when I show them this, they'll get, they'll get some kind of little talisman or some, maybe a little puppet or something. And I, I actually had one woman one time that carried around one in her purse so that she could, she, she could stay separate from it. So that so she said, I, I'm sure that there were times where I was, I was, you know, people could see that I was, you know, feeling rather, rather, you know, afraid of my purse, you know, it's like, <laughs> but uh, if it, and I'll tell you the other the other part of that the other side of that which is of course the what I call the recovery side of that and I don't when I say recovery I don't just mean addiction I mean just recovering our best self you know it's it's like I you know my my use of the word recovery I'm thirty thirty six years sober from from alcoholism but but I've used the word recovery means much more than that it means it's like recovering from what's toxic which includes the thoughts, the feelings, the, the beliefs that these beliefs that we're letting go of, and we 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 clear the space with recovering from, so that we can re recover who our authentic self is. And so when we do that part, the the ally that that the positive part for me, for me personally, has become very much like a tough loving parent. It's like it's it's not the kind of you know I used to, oh God and so many people do this I used to cringe when people would talk to me about self love. Ooh, uh, you know, please stay, stay away from me. Don't do that to me. It's, 
I and, and, and if somebody, if, if another, if another uh, a professional does it too much or, or what it feels like too much for me, I still will have that kind of reaction. But you know, because because I and I want people and I reassure people when I'm working with. I say, I promise you, this is not just about being so loving to yourself that you you little sweetheart. You know, that's the, that's fine. We need that stuff for that those those deepest nonverbal parts of ourselves. But what I, you know, what feels great to me is having this tough, loving parent that basically is just doesn't let me get away with shit. It just, it just, it, 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 it's, it's there, but it's on my side. It's a, it's a, you know, I always say that what we really needed as children is we need parents to be benevolent powers greater than us. So give me an example of what a tough, loving parent might say. Well, for me, it's like, I'm working on a new book right now, and I'm a master procrastinator. And I've, and I've, I've written for years and years now. But this 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 issue continues to be an issue for me. So that part of that part of me, I can just very much feel and experience that part of me as as, as you know, not being not being sweet, but being but, but it speaks very in a tough way, which is to say, you know. You put this off long enough. You need to be working. You know, other people are expecting results from you, not just yourself. People depend on you. You need to get this done. And I actually wrote out a dialogue with that. I encourage people to do that. And I wrote that and, you know, and I pushed back a little bit. And I love the fact that I was surprised that my tough, loving parents said, you don't have to do what I say. I'm just, I'm telling you what is best. I, you know, I think you know that it is. I'm not going to sit here and, and make you do it because I don't have the power to make you do it. And it's like, it landed on me perfectly because what he was what, what that inner voice for me was saying you still have to do this you know i can say this to you but i can't you know i, I literally i can't move your arms and hands and make you do it so you know and i want people to know that these that these voices you know and the negative ones too they can't move our arms and hands either you know they can't you know they're, they're my alcoholism never had the power to make me pick up a drink and drink it. What he had the power to do was to convince me to drink it. Mm. And, and now the voice, the power, the, the, the ally voice to me, he'll, he'll cuss at me just as much as anybody else, but it's done with love and I can feel it, you know. And your sort of bully neurotic voice, does that mm-hmm. take the tone of somebody or is it just a sort of an amalgam for you? For me, for me, it's not. That's a, that's a great question, uh, Andrew, because, for, for for some people, it will absolutely be the voice of someone. It's like, oh, that's my dad, or that's my mom, or you know, whatever it is. And what I always want people to know is, and this is an important distinction, okay, but I want you to understand this is not that person. This, if he says, okay, that's my dad, my, and I say, okay, I want you to understand, and I'll even experientially, if we're in this uh, session together, I'll put something out there to represent a chair or a pillow or something and say, okay, this is your inner voice. This is your inner bully. And then I'll put something to represent, or if we're in a group, even have somebody role play, you know, the father, the part of the father that programmed him. I say, but these are two different things because I want people to know that they're, they're, the problem they have to solve is not external. The problem they have to pro- is, is internal, is intrapersonal. It's like that, you know, whether, because, because you and I know that even if that man who programmed that voice is dead, the voice is still alive and, and, and changing the man is going to do, you know, is impossible. It's, it's not going to happen. It's, it's like, so, so some people though, they do, they do that and, and they do say who it is. And we, for me, what I say is there's nothing subtle about the, about, you know, I, I include in my list of things I'm recovering from 
um, self-hatred. I, 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 we called it, people called it self-criticism for a while. And I thought, well, that seems just lightweight. And then, I, so I landed on self-condemnation. And then I heard somebody talk about their self-hatred one time. And I thought, that's what I have. That's what I'm recovering Gosh, from. Yeah. That's a tough one to carry. Oh, it's and, and and very very associated like what you said before about it, the the bullying with the with the fear. It's like it's you know it really it really is like you know I'll say you know you know if you know somebody really well they know exactly what buttons to push. You know we use that that, that analogy. It's like this. I always say these guys live inside of you. They can see the buttons. You know, it's, it's like they're, they're they have their finger on the button all the time, like in some kind of game show, haven't they? <laughs> And 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 they don't they don't have a real the the this this uh, toxic bully does not have the same value system that we have either. So it, you know it, it's not go, it's not going to push the button and go oh I'm sorry you didn't deserve that. It's like, no, <laughs> it's just going to push it and go like there you go well you deserved it anyway, you know, because because very often we're talking just like we do with shame the fear stuff is 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 the 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 fear is based in something that feels inescapable and permanent you know this is the way it is this is what's going to happen no matter what you are going this is you know and especially if, if somebody feels like they're in a cycle of failure or they, they come up short on these things the the bully like a good salesman uses that to say you know just like your history you're always going to land right back here you know and what they do is they discourage to the point of hopelessness you know if i i, I will say to my clients sometimes if I was, you know, if I, if I was a bully, if I was your bully inside, what I would do that would make my life easier as the bully is the, the faster I could get you to hopelessness is the, the easier my life is. Because, because when you are without hope, you are without motivation. So let's start fighting back. You have okay. four steps. And so yeah. I'm going to take you through these four steps for dealing with fear. The first one, I'm afraid we're not going to really like any of these, but um, the first one I hate the most. (laughs) So at least, and that is face it. And that is so difficult. So why do we have to face it? Can't we just sort of say, I know where it is and pass on the other side of the road? Well, what what I would say to that is, you know, you probably already tried that. If that would have worked to the degree that it will, you know, and, and, and you know, we're not here to say that every, you know, every defense has not worked, but it's like it's, it, you know, it's, it's it's not been enough. It's not been enough to to, to get to, to to get your freedom from the relationship with this with with this uh, bully. This I sometimes call it the the should monster or the fear monster. And it goes back to what I was saying that my friend says is that acceptance is the first step to change. It's like, so, and I have a, I have a, a sign on my wall in my office that, that there's a little ditty that I wrote one time that says, always move towards your demons. They take their power from your retreat. Oh, I like that. Please repeat it because I like okay. that. They always move towards your demons. They take their power from your retreat. And one of the things I do to, to, to demonstrate that is I, I would, if we were sitting in the same room, I would have you stand in front of me, like put your hands on your hips, just take a position of power. You don't have to say anything. Just want you to be in that spot. Yeah, there you go. And then I'm going to sit down lower than you. And then as you just stand there, you don't move at all. I'm going to cringe farther and farther down. I'm going to become, you know, talk about my voice on this week, weaker and weaker and weaker. It's like, 
And what I'm demonstrating to the audiences there, if I'm there in a workshop, is that you don't change at all at that point. I am giving my power away by running, by, by retreating. And the truth is, then the next thing, of course, I do is, again, simple, not easy, is I stand up. And so you're in the same position, hands on hips, everything else. Maybe I match that with my hands on my hips. Maybe one of us is taller than the other. And if you're taller than I am, then maybe I grab a, a footstool over there and stand up on that. And, and you know, and not, 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 and not try to, not counter aggressing. It's simply, you know, I last that person, what do you feel? How do you feel different? I don't feel coward. I don't feel, I feel empowered. Okay. So that gives us a sense. Like you said, none of this is really fun to go toward, but it's like that kind of, but that kind of is when you first have that experience of like, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to, and see, this is so important because it's just like interpersonal relationships. That doesn't have to change for me to be better. That bully can stay exactly like he is, just like my alcoholism can stay exactly like he is, like somebody I work with with eating disorders. The eating disorder does not have to change. Your relationship to that is going to change. It's so powerful and it feels so good. And nope. And very often people have, have never differentiated themselves from these in this metaphor. It gives you that opportunity to do that so that you can actually feel your power as separate from, from that bully. So after we've faced it, the next thing we're going to do is explore it. What do you mean by that? Well, a, a lot of what I mean by that is that, that this is where, you know, one of my, one of my uh, pet peeves about other therapists or therapists, or even, I'm sure I've made this mistake as well. But is people who who sometimes I call it selling therapy off the rack, you know they just it's just everybody gets the same therapy. You know it's like it's like you're supposed to fit into you're a resistant client if you don't fit into my model of therapy. It's like you know it's like no their their exploration is that investigation I was talking about. That's that's to me some of the most most interesting and and I and I and I do use the word fun. It's like, but I don't mean like fun, like let's go to go to Disneyland and ride the roller coaster, but fun as in just a connection because it's, there's joy in it. I mean, there, and to me, I'm talking about joy at a, at a level of like feeling like there's something really, well, it's, this really fits with your theme of your whole program here, which is it's about meaningfulness. It's about purpose. It's like, oh my God, this is, this gives me a place where if I'm in charge of my own life. And there, you know, I need to learn more specifically about how this works. So that's that explore, uh, exploration thing is about is about we learn about the origin of it. We may talk a lot about family stuff, but we also may just talk about, OK, what you know, how does your bully and how do you and your bully interact on a day to day basis? And a lot of that has to do with sorting out the healthy fear from the from the uh, toxic. You know, it's not easy. It's like it's like it's, it's like I say, it's an easy concept to, to to grasp. But but then when you get in there, it's like it's really hard to sort that out because you, you've it's all been coming out of one speaker the whole time. And sometimes when you explore it, you're going to find there's other feelings hiding in there as well yeah. as fear. Oh, it's it, absolutely. And one of the things you're you know, there are going to be a lot of things. But one of the things that happens sometimes that, that is very validating for me as far as as far as really just how important it is for us to stay curious is very often that we, I may have identified something as a negative culprit, you know, voice, you know, in that. And as we go closer into it and we learn more about it, if I start to even interview the bully voice a little bit more, I'll find, wait a minute, this, this part has a very positive in, uh, intent here. And it's, it, it, I mean, it's too much to go, go into in detail, but I, I did a workshop in, in Dallas, Texas, not too long ago. And, and, and we were, I mean, I was ready, I was ready for us to, you know, and I, I don't have a problem, you know, helping people kick, kick ass with, with these, these bully voices because 
they're not part of the, our authentic self. They're just a metaphor for learned, learned thinking, learned belief systems that are not, that are erroneous. They're not real. But what I discovered as we went along, she had, this woman had told something about her brother who had died fairly recently. And I realized as we were talking, this is the voice of her brother, her, her concept of the brother. I'm not saying the brother himself, but it's like her, she had embodied this. And it was, it was really a, a part that had a genuine concern for her about things. And so recognizing, finding that in that workshop, realizing I'm teaching people how to, how to, how to confront these bullies and then basically getting to a place that says, wait a minute, this isn't one of them. This is a, this is a good, a well-intended part of this woman who need, who needs help itself to to uh, protect her and if as you explore you find several different bullies that's fine as well yeah there could be multiple versions in that oh absolutely one of the things one of the things i tell people is like don't forget you know i'll go back and remind them a lot of times don't forget this is the this is a metaphor and that means we can change it any way we want so we've faced it we've explored it and then we have to accept it back to acceptance yeah yeah. And I, I, I think the thing about acceptance that comes up as much as anything, or at least initially, is just the piece that, I mean, you and I, you and I, by definition of our careers, we, we bring this very important but very difficult message to people so often, which is, guess what? We can't change history. We can't make anything go away. You know, we can't change the history of our interpersonal life. We can't change the history of our intrapersonal life either. It's like this has all happened. These culprits, these these saboteurs within us, they're here. And now the idea is what we, I mean, one of the things, if you listen to the language, and I don't know about you, but for me, I use the same language. I can hear it myself. But even knowing all of this, we use the language of, of I need to stop doing this. I need to be rid of these things. And so acceptance means getting the idea that no, I'm 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 gonna add, no not subtract. You know, it's it's like I always say, I always use the example of the hypnotic the negative hypnotic command, don't think of the color blue or don't think of your left hand. Oh. You know, the brain the, the, I, I I tell people that uh, Andrew that the the extent of my neurological knowledge is that that the brain doesn't encode a negative. It's like you know, don't, don't imagine, don't imagine, you know, a, a green elephant. It's like, you know, we don't go through any cognitive process for that. It's like, it's just like that. So what do we, how much time do we spend going? I got to stop thinking that way. I got to, I got to not feel that. It's like, no, what do you do next? So after we've accepted it, and this is the interesting bit, we've already gone through facing, exploring and accepting it, is only then we, that we respond to it because our mm -hmm. natural inclination is fear, respond straight away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where we could, if we're, and this is definitely being playing with semantics, but, but that's where a lot of times we will, I'll use the, I'll, I'll make a distinction in our, our language to, from react to respond. You know, a reaction would be the, the cringing, the running away, the natural sort of reflex that we have. And that's part of what we discovered. What, what is our reflex when we run across it? Because go back to the thing you were saying at the very outset of, of this is, is one, one reflex a lot of, a lot of people will do have is when they're afraid, they, they, they don't show fear. They, they get, they get really mad. You know, so they show anger. It's, it's a legitimate feeling, but it's, but I always, I, I think people, people lead with certain feelings that they have more comfort, comfort with. And people who lead with anger probably need to get underneath there and listen to fear. 
And to be honest, men are socialized that yep. uh, we're not allowed to be uh, frightened, but we're, my gosh, we're allowed to be angry. Mm-hmm. So sometimes anger is standing in for fear. Yes, yes. And I'm a, and I also am a big believer that anger gets a really bad reputation because people say, well, well, that's, well I, I got to stop being angry. But we get confused with anger, the feeling and, 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 and the behaviors. You know, it's, I want people always make the point with people is I'm very grateful in my life that ethics turns out ethics apply to behavior, not to feelings. And I think about how often I have felt guilty or shame of things I felt or thought, you know, that just, I didn't have any choice. They just, they just show up. And I thought, but the idea is no, when you're talking about becoming a more responsible person, that's being in charge of your life and be able to do that. So we redefine anger there too. And anger is a anger. Anger is just energy. And it's an energy that says something's not right. It says something, I need something to be different. Now, it doesn't mean I may immediately think you need to be different. I need Andrew to change, you know, but it's like, and maybe that'll be part of it. But it'll, like I said before, it'll always start with me. It's like, what do I need? to? to so we deal with anger as a legitimate feeling, but, but the, the part, and you're right, it's not always, it's not always gender specific, but in our culture, men do have a harder time getting underneath there and, and saying, you know, what's, you know, and so one of the questions you, you probably do this as well. We just ask on a regular basis is what's, what scares you about this? Uh, you have a question that I just absolutely adore and I'm going to start using it. I actually, in my own analysis, mm-hmm. I actually used this question. Your question was, what's that thing that you should never tell anybody, that most terrible secret that you're frightened of the reaction of them? In other words, what should I never tell anybody? And that is probably the very thing you should actually be telling your therapist. So last Friday, I took took this question to my therapist. Oh my gosh. Um, Once again, the old heart was thudding away. Um, (laughs) And you can you can you guess the response from my therapist? She, she he was fine with he. it. It's like he he was fine. He was like, oh, he was interested. He was curious. He was grateful that you that you basically trusted him enough to tell you. Yeah. And within about ten minutes, the fear which I had sort of faced, we'd explored, mm-hmm. and I'd sort of accepted it. There was very little to actually respond to because. It sort of rather exactly disappeared. Exactly what you were saying at the first. This is perfect, Andrew, because this fits in what you were, were talking about, how we use fear to control. It's like, because if you look at that, 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 that inner bully for you was saying, and, and this, is what, this is where that question comes from, is saying to you, okay, well, somebody may accept you. They may like you. They may think well of you. But if they knew this, you know, dot, dot, dot. It's like, it's like, so that, you know, that's the thing that you did. And that's the thing I'm saying to clients when I ask that question, go like, and and it's interesting too, because it's easier to tell therapists things like that when you first meet them. It's, it's when you, when you've been in therapy a long time, now you care what they think. It's like, at first they're a stranger. It's it's like, no, now, now I don't, you know, no, I, I really, and I have that, I have that sense of, I have, I'm, I need this, I need this person's approval and acceptance. It's like, which is, which is a problem. And I'm still thinking that we have to need and have somebody else's approval to be okay. But in this particular case, it's a given that basically you still will have it. It's a great question. I mean, 
could you actually say that to your partner? What's the worst thing you could tell your partner about yourself? That, that, I felt that in my chest when you said it. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, immediately, immediately, right in the middle of my chest, I felt, I felt that. Oh, dear. That. That's, no, but see, we'll practice what we, what we teach. It's like, that's information. It's like, you, yeah. you know, my, it's like, oh, among other things, I, you give me something else to think about. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the things we're doing new on The Meaningful Life is we're inviting everybody who has a dilemma to write in and um, tell us about what's happening in their life and to get an outside opinion. And um, I recruit through the whole world to find interesting people who are going to give you thoughts. And this is the letter I'm going to share with Tom. My wife started an affair in secret with someone she met at a training event. Before they got together, the man reached out to her to see if she was interested in dating. She told me about that, that he'd contacted her, and there was nothing to worry about. Weeks later, however, she started seeing him and got intimate with him. While this was going on, I could sense something was wrong. I approached her and asked her if she was okay. For a while, she said yes, and that she was just feeling off. I didn't try to push. But another time I asked how she was and she said she'd gone to our lawyer to ask about a legal separation and thought it'd be good for us to consider this option. I was blindsided. I protested. I pleaded. I got angry, sad, upset. The full range of emotions. But after a cool-down period, we talked about what it meant and what the process might look like in the form of a trial separation. It felt like there was some progress but then she confessed that she'd been seeing this man. If I was blindsided before, I was truly bowled over after that. Since the beginning of the month, my wife and I have been living apart. She says she wants to use the time to date herself, which I like, but nevertheless, she continues to date this other man. I don't know what to do. One minute I'm trying to work on myself and understand how my marriage got to this point, and the next I'm full of anger. Sometimes I can listen to my wife explain herself, and at others, I'm cold and distant. So we've got a whole range of very strong feelings there. Did you notice there was one feeling that wasn't mentioned? Oh, fear. Exactly. Well, you sent me this and I read it and that did not occur to me. That's interesting. Yes. Well, it was one of the reasons why I chose this letter because I love actually, it. when it comes to infidelity, the overriding feeling is fear you know, what is going to happen. I mean, your fear is stalking you all the time, but it's not actually necessarily always spoken about. Reading your book really got me thinking about that. So any thoughts for this guy? Well, a a lot. I mean, first first of all, I want to, you know, I'll start at the the end. Since I can, uh, uh, sometimes I can listen to my wife uh, explain herself and others, I feel cold and distance. One thing I would say is, is, of course, I mean, there's, you're going to come and go from, from this. And there are different aspects of our emotional response. There's not just one emotional response. You know, there is, um, 
Um, you know, the thing I call, I call it the myth of singularity is what drives most of us crazy is thinking we're supposed to just think and feel one way. It's like, there's different parts. We're talking about the, the, the negative culprit parts of ourselves with the fear and the shame today, but it's like there are different parts of ourselves. And so, and, and obviously part of what listening will do will be, will be evoke the fear. And part of a response to the fear, or, you know, whether it be reaction or response, is going to be to distance yourself and and and, uh, and, and hold back. And I, you know, and maybe it's cold, cold. Maybe it's cold because he, there's anger. I, I would want him to know. I want would want this. I want this man to know that that what he's describing, you know, not. Just, I mean, it's just. It's, I'm I'm not having trouble knowing what I'm thinking. I'm just trying to put it into words. His emotional response. You're right. The range of feelings is here, and he says that it's like. And I like the idea that with your with your question in that, if it's like, tell me about, you know, if we if somebody sits there and says that, and you say, okay, well, tell me about what's the what's scary about this, you know, mm. that's a beautiful place. It just naturally goes where where this guy probably needs to go to get to be afraid, which can a lot of times be that if this doesn't change or if my if another person doesn't change, I'm not going to be okay, and that's to me that's. I mean, that's the scariest thing there is. I mean, because ultimately, you know, you know, in, in the book, I talk about walking down the ladder. It's like, what, you know, it, well, I'm scared that my wife would leave me. Okay. If your wife leaves you, what happens? It's like, well, then I'm completely alone and desolate. And it's like, then what? And if you're completely alone and desolate, if we don't rescue too soon. We, we go in there and say, wait. So if you're completely alone and desolate, what? It's like my life is meaningless. So we go to your, your your topic. It's like, and it's like, it's amazing how just three rungs down the ladder and go like, oh, no wonder I'm feeling this intensity of fear because it will feel like I will stop existing. It will feel like this is going to kill me. I mean, I didn't, somebody might be suicidal, but it's not, I'm not even talking about suicidal. I'm just talking about it. Just, it's that fear of abandonment. And once you actually say the sentence, I'm frightened this is going to kill me, you can actually challenge that. You can actually say, it probably isn't actually going to kill you. It just feels like it's going to kill you. But actually naming the fear out loud, you can challenge it. If it's sort of just skirting around the edges, you can't challenge it. Andrew, I love that. It's like that's a very, sometimes as as an old therapist, sometimes what happens, I've discovered, is I forget, I really just forget the, some of the simple things that we we can do that can really you know that because I can get I can get overly back to my ego for a moment that I got to fix these things or I got to figure out that you know, but the truth is what you're saying is perfect it's, it's the perfect therapeutic or a, a per, or a very wonderful because there's no such thing as perfect right uh, a good therapeutic response to say to, to name it and then and then I love your line which is uh, it's probably not. I mean, to me, that's the. I'm watching this imaginary therapy session, and this guy says this to you, and, and you go like, "Well, it's it's probably not going to kill you." <laughs> like, really? It's like, no, it's yeah, it's 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 gonna it's gonna hurt like hell, but it's it, you do have to know that you can you can withstand the worst case scenario, even if you're going to go back and work on making the marriage work. Mm. What impressed me about this letter was just his curiosity about what's going on for his wife and what's going on inside him as well. I mean, that is a beautiful response to yes, this. Yes, he does. He does. Yeah, he doesn't abandon his responsibility to look at his part. Yeah, he's an introspective man. There's no doubt. 
And that, and that, that's double-sided. That means, that means that's very good. We like, we like that. We think that's a good thing. And it's also a pretty painful thing to be an introspective person. And uh, once again, our society, the, the shame is going to come down quite a lot on introspective men because, um, sadly, mm-hmm. our culture wants men to act rather than to contemplate first. Well, the hell with that. We're contemplative guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what we do is we act from that. It's like that's the thing. The thing is, that's that, again, went back to the semantics of the difference between reacting and responding. It's like, I mean, that's one of the things I think is better about me at, at this this time in my life is is that I am not you know I'm not ruled by my reflexes you know Victor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning says has that part about about the the the, the tiny space in, between stimulus and response you know where we make a choice and it's like it's so powerful that's what we you know we're, to the degree that that without even knowing each other beyond what we know with each other with this conversation to the degree that that you and i are better people for what we have gone through we that's where it has happened we have gotten better at understanding and accepting we could use the terms we use today, accepting you know how what the what the inner workings are up to that point where you where that reflex because the reflex don't change the reflex and and then we have we've installed that little process that little that little space and we and we've gained wisdom from from uh, ourselves and from others to, to use in there as tools to say okay i can i can do a better job of responding i can i can once once it's not i'm going to instead of the reflex once the reflex goes off i'm going to make a decision about how to respond and it's that gap between the stimulus and your reflex action, if you can get into that moment, you can do something different. And that something different probably is going to be better than the same old thing you've always done beforehand. Even if it isn't brilliant, at least you're not going to be going flat on your face in exactly the same way as beforehand. That's beautiful because because the thing is, it's like because the response – yeah, because that, that's the place that, that's when we really are addressing perfectionism. Cause I'm going like, you, you may not think you have perfectionism, but most, most people have some version of that when we, when we really start to define it. But the truth is every, we we'll go back to what I said earlier, which is everything is information. So I'll tell clients like, so try something different, you know, when in doubt. And it's like, and if it completely, you know, or I give them a suggestion, maybe try this, and this, and I say, and you can come back in here and say, that was the dumbest thing you could have possibly told me, you know, that worked, that did, that made things only worse. What I will say is, oh, sorry about that. And that's information. Now we know, now we know that we don't go that direction. Well, thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. As the witness, I have to turn the tables on you and ask you what makes your life meaningful. I love that you asked that question. I love, I love that you give me the heads up that I'm going to be asked the question because it, it really it's really, a, it's really a beautiful contemplation, uh, kind of a med- meditation in a way. Um, it's, I'll go back to Viktor Frankl. I, the, I love what Viktor Frankl says about if you think if you're looking for what the meaning of your life is, it's important that you know that it is you who's being asked the question. What meaning will you make of your life? And it's like to me, it's about rather than I'm trying to sound not too vague. It's like to me, I think I've landed in a place where it's about integrity and about congruence. Uh, I think the the very top piece of my website, I, I have something that says something to the effect of, of you know, I 
you know, and by the way, I, as a decide, I'd love happiness. Happy's fun. I, it, I like that. But more important than happiness, you know, at the end of the day is self-respect. And, 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 and self-respect is, is comes because I am living according to my own value system. What I have added over the last, maybe more than over the last decade in my life that, that I was working on and, and even written about and teaching about, I feel like I've actually had more success with it as I've gotten older, is being sure that I have a very good value system about how I treat myself. You know, it, it's like not just how I treat you, but, but the idea of getting out of that double standard where I treat everybody, I'm the exception to the rule, everybody else deserves a break, but I, I don't, or, or I can be kinder to other people. I'm big on belief in being kind to people. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to do. What, what an easy gift to give the world. But to not leave myself out of that, and that, has, that strengthens me. So the, and what I would say today, in the practical terms, I love the fact that I live a life in which that ambition, this is, you, this, you did good therapy today, Andrew, that ambition to me does not control my life. It's like I am more interested in the fact that my dog is waiting downstairs to take a walk when I finish with you. And that I, I have, I have some work to do on a book that I'm writing and that my wife will be home a little bit later. And we're in the middle of watching a television show together that we like. It's like, those are the things I think about with my day to day. And I think if, if we, if I've traveled back in time and told the younger version of myself of that, I think he might commit suicide, but it's, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's beautiful today. It's an easier question to answer when you're over 60 than when you're under 20, isn't it? Really? Yes. Well, I think it's just different. I don't know. When I was, when I was younger, I could have answered it probably with great authority. I could have told because <laughs> I knew everything. <laughs> I, I understood. And I, I could tell you what your, I, I could tell you what the meaning of your life should be. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah. it's the bit in the middle between 20 and 60 yeah. that's so difficult. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. All that period of time that we spend figuring out that, uh-oh. <laughs> I, I have another one of my little nut nutshells says, uh, wisdom is the accumulated knowledge of our ignorance. It's, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's like the more, the more we know that we don't know, the better off we are. Well, unfortunately, this is where the conversation with Tom is going to end. But if you're a member of the Supporters Circle, the conversation continues. I'm going to be um, finding out all about self-forgiveness. Tom has also written a book about self-forgiveness, so I'm going to ask him about that. And the three things he knows deep down to be true. So in a moment, you'll hear the details about how you can become a member of our Supporters Circle and hear this bonus material. And now on Apple, it's possible to actually specifically buy this. Here come some of the details that you will need. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. 
Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.